about Mary. The church hasn't always known what to do with Mary. If you grew up back with a Catholic background, you probably grew up to somewhat, somewhat venerate Mary, possibly even pray to Mary, which is not an activity you actually find in the Bible, but, but, but there was an almost godlike status Mary had in that tradition and has. And others of us, if you grew up in a Protestant background like I did, you probably wanted to avoid that. And so you were in a background where you just completely avoided Mary. And if you had neither a Catholic nor Protestant background, um, I'm happy to introduce Mary to you today. Um, what do we do with her? I want to talk about Mary's miracle, the Mary miracle, by starting with Luke chapter 1. And uh, we're going to begin to see um, this amazing life unfold and find, I trust, our stories in it. So Luke chapter 1, we'll begin with verse 26. It's the very beginning of the Christmas story. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy... God sent Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, who was a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, that simple a declaration that Mary, who we've not heard of previously, out of nowhere in a little village of Nazareth, we see this pronouncement over a young lady's life, the Lord is with you. What that's going to mean for Mary is not just one-dimensional bliss. <laughs> because Mary's life is going to become this mixture a promise and pain. A promise and pain. And that's why your story and my story, I believe, find a certain intersection with Mary's. Now, now none of us will experience, of course, the virgin birth and, and giving birth to the Son of God and the Messiah. But, but this, I- embedded in those words, the Lord is with you, will, will become all kinds of contradictions, to be honest with you. Where on one side there's going to be promise and the other side there's going to be pain. Here's the promise. Like if we would keep reading just a few more verses. Verse 35, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. This is the promise. That God's Spirit's going to come on you and conceive in you the Son of God. But here's the pain. Just after Jesus is born, while he's still a baby, they take him to the temple to be consecrated. And there's a man there in the temple courts watching everybody mill around that we're told is full of the Holy Spirit and and, and had been promised that he'd see the Messiah before he died. His name was Simeon. And sure enough, he sees Mary and Joseph with the baby Jesus and he heads right for them and he rejoices that he's finally seen the Savior And then he looks Mary, right at the end of that moment, he looks Mary in the eye and said, and in addition to all the promise of God's Messiah coming, and a sword will pierce your own soul. 
too. So here you have the promise and the pain. You have to marry a promised son and a pierced soul. It's promise and pain. It's, what, it's the embodiment of what one writer calls broken faith. It's, it's not that our faith is broken. Our faith is strong, but we become broken from our arrogance, our need to be in control, our self-dependence, and somehow processes work in us to reduce us, and yet with the pain that may even involve, it doesn't erode our faith. Now, here's how that same writer describes it. The human tendency is to emphasize either brokenness or faith. The faith-speaking people, thank God for them, they talk about taking our cities for God and doing great exploits. They're ready to take on the principalities and powers of darkness. They're bold, they're strong, they're undefeatable, they're more than conquerors. And so they love a lot of the songs we sing on Sunday morning. He goes on, though, to say, then you've got your brokenness people. Every time you ask them how they're doing, they say things like, God's sifting his church. And there's a breaking going on right now. And he's shaking everything that can be shaken. God is really cleaning out. He concludes by saying, there's a tremendous truth on both sides. But the Lord doesn't want us to end up on either side. He wants us to embrace both and find the balance of a broken faith. This is the kind of faith that has room for both promise and pain. Knowing that... uh, I kind of quipped earlier today that I woke up very happy about celebrating Christmas and, as usual, concerned about the sermon. That's because years ago, God got me over myself. And I ceased years ago being impressed with anything that I might have thought was impressive. And sometimes I just, before I preach Sunday morning, I just lie in my face and say, God, I can't do this without you. That, I mean, I, I need to stay in that place. And When I start losing that, it just takes one painful email to get me back on my face and say, God, I really can't do this. (laughs) And yet, in that brokenness, in that brokenness, we can never lose sight that we are more than conquerors. And our faith is stronger than ever. That somehow pain doesn't contradict promise. This is what I love about Mary because the two fuse together. So first of all, let's not forget that Mary's pain was very real, was very real. And it actually starts, as far as the biblical record, when Jesus was 12 years old. He had gone into Jerusalem with his parents, and he, he lost himself. He knew where he was, but he didn't tell his parents. So if you've ever lost a child for a while, like a couple of hours. You've been in the mall, and all of a sudden, like two hours go by, and you can't find your child. You know the panic that goes through your heart. Turns out Jesus was lost in the big city, Jerusalem, for three whole days. 
If it was today, there would have been all points bulletins put out. There would have been missing persons reports filed. There would have been amber alerts sounded. I mean, three whole days, and Jesus, a 12-year-old kid, is missing. And uh, they finally found him, the one place they didn't think to look for him, and that's in the temple. He's sitting, li- he's sitting there listening to the priest's lectures and taking them on as a 12-year-old child. And uh, when they finally find him, Mary is not a happy camper. She is livid. She's been in a panic for three days straight. She looks at Jesus and said, son, how could you do this to me and your dad? And Jesus just answers back, put it on the screen, verse 49, why were you searching for me? He asked. That's not the question that a panicked mom wants to hear back. Like, what's the problem? I'm going to slap you up the side of the head, kid. What do you mean, what's the problem? Jesus said, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they, that would be Mary and Joseph, they did not understand what he was saying to them. And this is so true about promise. Mary had already had an angel appear to her and explain what was going to happen to her. But even that did not explain, the promise itself did not clarify and explain everything that that journey would mark for her in the future. And it's possible to have promise and to hold it dear, near to you with undying faith and yet for the life of you, you've been te- be tearing your hair out saying, I just don't get it. And in spite of the promise, they, they just, they did not understand what Jesus was trying to tell them. And then that in turn leads to a lot of family conflict. By this point, it seems Joseph must have died. He's not on the scene anymore. Jesus is now at least 30, 31 years old and his public ministry has started. And Jesus is off doing his thing. And they're probably still not understanding. And so they decided, we just, we don't know what's going on. We just need to find Jesus and just talk to him. So Luke, Matthew 12, 47, someone told him, your mothers and brothers are standing outside waiting to speak to you. And he replied to him, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? I mean, that had to hurt. Especially in that culture. It would sound like a renunciation of his family. And Mary's going, come on, who's your mother? What is going on? And then the tension keeps growing in the family. She's a single mom now. You know a mother's heart when the kids are scrapping with each other. If you're a mom, you, you have been there, I guarantee you. And in John 7, verse 4, her, his brothers, at a time Jesus is home, takes Jesus, take Jesus on. And they're saying this kind of in a mocking way. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, why don't you just go ahead and show yourself to the world? Why don't you just kind of hold them back? We're all going to Jerusalem for the festival. Why don't you go with us? You, you know, okay, you're a big shot, right? Why aren't you going public? 
And the reason they asked that, John explains in the next verse, for even his brothers did not believe him. So you have this family conflict going on. And Mary, uh, without a husband anymore, is, is having to negotiate. She doesn't know what to think about her oldest son in spite of the promise. The family feud is getting so grievous and, and heartbreaking. But then the true moment that Simeon was talking about when her heart would be pierced with a spear. It's at the cross. Jesus, Jesus was hanging on a cross. Now, probably Mary's anxiety has, had been growing over the previous week. Jesus has showed back up in Jerusalem. Started with Palm Sunday and then that last week of, with Jesus. She probably was in the crowd. She was trying, this was her son. What is going on? But something doesn't feel right. There are rumors starting to cir- circulate that her, his inner, somebody in his inner circle might stab him in the back and betray him. There were rumors circulating around town that the religious elite was sure that this was the moment they were going to get Jesus. Can you imagine a mother's heart and just the anxiety? And then f- finally on that good Friday morning, the worst of her horrors takes place in front of her as she watches her son hang on a cross for hours on end being slowly tortured to death. She's there. If you've ever lost a child because she watched him die. If you're a parent, you've lost a child. Um, I've never had that experience. My parents had that experience, but I never had that experience. I can't imagine. And there she is. the sword of grief is plunging into her heart. Just like Simeon said, a sword will pierce your own heart too. And it's in that moment that the full circle story starts coming, where the promise starts coming full circle. For Jesus hanging there in agony with his mother wanting, what on earth? Jesus looks down from the cross and he says... He says to her in verse 26 of John 19, when Jesus saw his mother there, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that would be John who's writing this. He said, woman, here's your son. And to the disciple, here's your mother. I'm dying. Here's your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. it's the most agonizing of moments, but such a tender moment when something of promise now starts, just starts to come full circle. But I want to tell you that in the end of this story, although Mary's pain was very real, it turns out that it's the promise that prevails. And I want to say that over your lives this morning. You know what? I would have thought that encounter with the angel in Nazareth would have explained everything for Mary, but it didn't, and her journey became painful. But it, in the end, was the promise of God that would prevail. It would be, first of all, the promise for a Savior. Way back before Jesus was even conceived and born, uh, Luke, again, back to describing what the angels said. Luke 1, 31, you will conceive and give birth to a son. You're to call him Jesus because he'll be great 
And he'll be called the son of the most high. And Jesus means savior. And, and, and the Holy Spirit will come on you. That's that promise the angel gave to Mary. The Holy Spirit will come on you. And the power of the most high will overshadow you. So the holy one to be born will be called the son of God. And now as Mary's pierced in her soul watching her son die on a cross. Here the promise of a savior is starting to come full circle. For another one of Jesus' followers, Peter would later say, on that cross he bore your sin and mine on himself so that we could die to the old to sin and we could live for righteousness and by his wounds we could be healed. That's the promise of a savior. It's the promise of a savior. When you get over yourself, you realize you need a savior. That all the stuff you can flaunt in God's eyes and other people's eyes isn't enough. Bottom line, we need a Savior. If you've turned your back on the Creator and tried to live outside of His design, I want to say to you, you need a Savior. You weren't made to live like that. And if you, if you do follow Jesus and you're pretty impressed with how great a Christian you are, I want to say again to you, you need a Savior. Because me at my best never impresses him. He just flat out loves me. And he died in my place to give me his salvation. But Mary receives not only at the beginning of Jesus' life the promise of a Savior, but she receives one other promise in spite of all the pain. And that's at the end of Jesus' life. Just before, He's died, he's rose again, and he, just before he ascends back into heaven till the day he comes back again, we're still waiting for that day. He said to his fathers in Luke 24, 49, I, Jesus, am going to send you what my father has promised. I'm going to send you what my, there's promise again. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So Jesus is going to be leaving them and and he gives them, he says, the fa heavenly father has promised to not leave you alone. He's promised to give you the power of his spirit. So here we have for Mary, not only the promise of a savior, but the promise of the spirit. He said, I'm going to clothe you with on high. Like if I was to take my jacket off and put it back on, he's going to wrap you in his power, power and strength, not your own. That's why the journey is not to do with anything about being impressed with yourself, just being loved, knowing who you are in Christ and being clothed with power for one eye. Well, how do you know that's a promise for Mary? Well, Luke, same guy, writes the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter one, he says, they did that. They just stayed in Jerusalem until whatever Jesus was talking about of the Father's promise would happen. And he says in verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. They were doing what Jesus said. Let's just wait in Jerusalem till we're clothed with power, whatever that means. And here's what, here's what Luke adds. They together were constantly in prayer along with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And his brothers. Oh, it's really starting to come full circle now. The family's back together. In the first verse of the next chapter, and when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. 
here in this moment, promise and pain converged in Mary's life. And she came out of that with what I would truly call a broken faith. Broken of her anticipation after she talked to the angel about what the script should be. Broken of any sense of, um, of being successful for a while to even keep her family together. But now, promise has come full circle in spite of the pain. And just like, just like on that day when the angel spoke to her, she responded, may your word to me be fulfilled. What an open-heartedness. May your word to me be fulfilled. She said that to the angel just before the Christmas story took place. And there again in the day of Pentecost, she was with the seekers for the spirit of her son to come and fill her heart. Can you imagine that? And she was again saying, God, if that's your promise, the promise of your spirit, may your word to me be fulfilled. So I want to close by asking you three, three brief questions. The first one is this. Have you submitted yourself, I mean you, have you submitted yourself completely to Christ? I emphasize completely because maybe you've been sort of living for Christ, but your life's full of a lot of, a lot of distractions and you're kind of lukewarm toward, you do come to church every, some weeks and, and, and you love you, you pray a little, especially when you feel you need something. But what about completely? I mean, what about actually surrendering that, okay, God, no conditions, no bargaining, no if clauses, I just, may it be to me as you have said. I mean, just complete surrender. In maybe a way you haven't surrendered to him before. I was very inspired recently hearing a story, a spiritual journey story about one of, who is today one of the world's leading leadership consultants. His name is Patrick Lencioni. Possibly that rings a bell to you if, uh, if maybe you've had your managers at work uh, have you read that book. I've had our staff team read some of his books. I've got a little stack of them. They're great reading. Death by Meeting. Death by Meeting. I just love the title of that, let alone the book. I know that feeling. Death by Meeting. God, help us all the meetings. And Five Dysfunctions of a Team. That one helped me a lot a few years ago. And The Advantage. I just took our, our staff team through that somewhere just before COVID hit. And now his six, his six working geniuses is his newest work. And I don't know if it's in book form yet, but it's, we looked at it a few months ago as a staff team. It's amazing. He is one of the leading, Patrick Lencioni. And I kind of, from his early days, kind of sensed that he may have a modicum of faith somewhere. But I wasn't sure. But I recently heard him interviewed he said, I did have a modicum of faith, but it wasn't the center of my life. He said, because of some just internal woundedness, I, I just so needed to perform in order to get people's approval, and success became a God to me. And he said, I just went after success. 
thinking that if I would find success, I would find it. I would find what would fill my life. I would find what I needed. That would be my life goal. And he said, I reached success. He became fabulously successful and world-renowned. And he said, when I got there, I realized there was no more there, there. In fact, he says, I know a lot of professional athletes. I know a lot of CEOs that I work with. And he said, I know a lot of, a lot of, know, I know a lot of famous people uh, who are experts in all kinds of fa- fields. And I was surprised to hear him put it, I mean, this simply. He said, and most every one of them are empty people. They feel empty because success doesn't do it. He said, success like an addiction, just like drug addiction or sexual addiction. You think it just, it's ruining you, but you just think you need more. And he said, I came to that place. He said, the only exceptions to these famous people that I rub shoulders with when it comes to emptiness are, are people who have faith. He said, that became my journey. Totally disillusioned with success. One day at church, I literally got on my knees. He had started a journey spiritually. One day he said, I got on my knees and I said, Lord, I want to get all the way there with you. Not part way. I want to get all the way there with you. And he said, it was like the Spirit of God spoke to me and said, are you sure? Are you sure you want that? He said, I don't have anything else. And he had a lovely family. And he was still making lots of money. And he was still writing books. And he was still world famous. But he said, God, I want to go all the way. All the way there with you. And he said, the next couple, three years were very painful. Pain and promise go together. And he said, God stripped me. Those were his words. He said, God stripped me, even though he's still successful. He said, he stripped me of the attachments to worldly things. Everything he was living for. He said, it was extremely painful in my life as he, as he stripped attachments to worldly things from me. He said, I had to get, these are his words, I had to get to nothing before God, before God could build me up again. He says, now, he says, nothing makes sense in my life without Jesus. And he's doing some of the best work he's ever done in his leadership consulting life. But he said, nothing in my life makes sense without Jesus, and nothing will last without him. Mary said, may it be to me as you have said. That's deciding I'm going to surrender completely to Jesus. And let him take me on a journey that might cost me everything, but will make me into everything that God wants me to be. The second question, very simply, in light of that, are you determined to live a life full of the Holy Spirit? It's amazing how many times Paul said, you know, am I we-? you know I'm weak, but he's strong. In fact, God does his best work when I'm weak. Your weakness, your insecurities aren't a threat to God. In fact, sometimes he lets you live with him so that you can just stay totally dependent on him. What he wants to give you instead is the power of his Holy Spirit. It amazes me that Mary was there on the day of Pentecost when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. 33 years later, earlier, the angel had said, 
had said, the Spirit of God is going to overshadow you. The, the Spirit of the Almighty is going to overshadow you and conceive the life of God's Son in you. Now, once again, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God overshadowed them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And the life of Jesus exploded in them. So are you determined not to live on your own steam, but not only to completely surrender to him, but to be full of the Holy Spirit? I mean, is that a determination? I am going to live full of the Holy Spirit, whatever that takes. It's about all the distractions, all the entertainment, all, and they're all fine, but I'm going to live full of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to live on my own steam anymore. And then the last question I want to ask you, because we've been describing broken faith here. Could, could broken faith become your offering back to God? <laughs> to say, God, here's, here I am. I'm all there is. I'm not much. That doesn't mean I'm beating myself up all the time. I'm just... I'm just your creation and you have promised me a savior and you promised me your spirit and I pray that I will live fully submitted to him, dead to me and alive to him and full of your Holy Spirit. And so really all I have to give back to you is nothing that would impress you particularly. All I have to give back to you is a broken faith and I offer it to you personally broken, to any sense that I can do this, but unwavering in my faith that you are the God of promise and you bring promise full circle in my life. Will you stand with me?